a few weeks away from from Purim, and a few weeks, few days away from Purim. So we're going to take a break from the parsha to discuss not Rabbi Salavechik on the parsha, but Rabbi Salavechik on Purim. And he has multiple essays found in a book on Purim. He has a lot of halachic essays as well. But this one particular essay really spoke to me because, as you see, the title of today's shir on the source sheet. Purim, the most relevant celebration. And Rabbi Salavechik does a deep dive into what exactly we're doing on Purim. What are we cel- not what are we celebrating? We know we're celebrating a miracle, but there's something unique and distinct about the nature of the celebration of Purim that A, is different than the other celebrations we have throughout the year, other holidays throughout the year. And number two, I think in a way is most relevant to where we find ourselves living in the diaspora, living in Gullis, living in exile in 2023. So, this is what Rabbi Salvechik says. There's something he says about the nature of, of the joy of Purim, which is fundamentally different. In fact, I think the first place to even look is, we're familiar with the phrase, Mishinichnas Ardar, Mar Bimbe Simcha. When Adar comes, we increase our joy. That's a, that's a statement taken out of the Talmud in the tractate of Tainus. It's not found in the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law. Why not? There are those who point out because there's no halachic ramification about this increase of joy. It's not, we increase our joy, therefore we do the following, shake the lulav, or increase our joy, therefore we eat hamantashen. That's not halachic. The code of Jewish law is a halachic work. It's not a hashkafic work, a work of philosophy, so it doesn't bother recording it, which is therefore, the, it begs the question, so what exactly are we increasing? What, what's the joy we're increasing? Or for a salvagic purpose, there's something, again, distinct about the joy of Purim which doesn't apply and doesn't exist, and in fact may even fly in the face of the way we experience or we relate to simcha throughout the year, simcha being joy. So what I want to do is look at a few of the halachic sources of the requirement for joy on Purim, simcha on Purim, and then we're going to kind of start developing our question even further, comparing and contrasting it to the simcha, and I I would say the way in which we should think of real joy, not just happiness, but joy throughout the year. Says the Gemara McGill, this is a Gemara that those in high school love to quote, and those who sometimes think they're still in high school, even though they may be adults, love to quote. There is an obligation on Purim to consume enough something, let's put it as wine, so that one becomes so intoxicated they don't know the difference between Cursed be Haman, and praise and, and blessed be Mordechai, as in this obligation to drink. This is the Gemara. The Gemara then goes on, and this may be a qualifier. Rav of Rav Zera of Hadadi. One year, Rav and Rav Zera decided to have a joint Purim meal. Come Rav, Shachter of Zera. Rav gets up there and he slaughters Rav Zera in a moment of dr- of drunkness. Doesn't mean he literally killed him, but it means he he injured him in some way. So, the next day he gets up, realizes what he did, and he says he, said he, he prayed for mercy, he, he paid him back for whatever damage he caused, he basically uh, made good on the fact that when he was drunk, he got out of control. Yeah. The next year, what happens? He comes to him and says, No, you want to have a pseudo game with me? Come on, it was so great last year. To which point, Ravzeir responds to Rabbah and says, Nisi Nisa. He goes, I'm not going to have a meal with you. You remember what happened last year? I'm not relying on a miracle to happen again that I'm going to become re- resuscitated. I'm not going to re- rely on the fact that, you know, I, last year you got out of control and you hurt me. Who knows what will happen this year? 
So that may be a qualifier to the statement of drinking to excess, but the point is that there's definitely is this, a strong um, halachic basis for imbibing some sort of wine, drinking some sort of wine. In fact, says the Rambam, Rambam is going through the laws of Purim, it says it's Megillah, which we've talked about multiple occasions, I sent an email out, perhaps the most important part of the day is actually giving the gifts to the poor. In fact, there are those who think the point of Mashalach Manos is to normalize gifts on Purim so that those who are poor who actually need the gifts don't feel embarrassed to take. It's a very interesting idea. Okay, and then we know the fourth, the fourth mitzvah of the day is having the suda, having the meal. Well, what's exactly, what do we do with this meal? What do you do? So it says the Rambam, Shachabasar, eat meat. Make a nice, set at the table nicely. According to what you have. And drink enough wine that you actually fall asleep from the amount of wine that you have, you have imbibed. This is what the Rambam says as well. A note of caution for those in the room who are thinking of drinking out of control. Comes along the Chayadim of Avram Danzig. And says as follows. What's the connection to wine? Well, if you think about it, much of the nace of Purim happened because of wine. The fact that Achishverosh initially got drunk, deposed his wife, which then led to Esther being chosen. The fact that Esther made meals, invited Achishverosh to this wine, a wine banquet. That's what it was. Describes it as, so much of the nace of Purim happened over wine. Therefore, and, 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 and Mishta and having a suda, a, a parties. So th- therefore he says, the way in which, therefore, we can commemorate the miracle which happened through wine is to drink wine, although he adds in a word, more than you normally drink. Now, for some people, that might be a lot. For some people, myself, that's a little bit. I'd rather be among the little bit. Welcome back. Um, the Amnam, and this is what he, now he qualifies it, and he says, if a person knows that through drinking wine, they're going to uh, degrade themselves. Or they're going to lead to not fulfilling other mitzvot of the day. You drink so much, you can't wash your hands. Or you forget to bench. Or you don't daven mincha or marav, which we've noted in the past. Drinking can all, even if you go and technically say the words, if you were under the influence, that marav may not be a uh, valid marav. So if you know that's going to happen, oh, she know Kalos Rose, or you're going to act in a way which is totally um, one of a, a certain sense of levity, that which, which is just inappropriate. It's better not to drink at all. And he ends off, everything you do has to be l'shem shemayim, for the sake of heaven. Now, I find it interesting. Some people who don't seem too punctilious in observance of mitzvahs all year round, suddenly when it comes to drinking, it's like, oh, don't you know it? The Gemara? Why are you relying on the cool of the Chayadam? It's like, I'll tell you why, because you rely on the cool of the Chayadam for everything else in your life. So, no, I just find it interesting, and I think that the point of L'Shem Shemayim is that we have to kind of realize that um, it has to be done with the right intention in mind. But the point is, and this is the point we want to pull out from here, is... According to everyone, there is some sort of mitzvah to drink. Again, not the excess drinking out of control. I pointed out my drasha this week. I once saw a real Talmud Chacham being carried outside of his, of his house because he was so drunk. And I remember thinking, like, it's just like, it's a chil Hashem. Like, what are you doing yourself? You're degrading yourself. But to drink more than usual. And I've been at the Sudas where I've seen great people who drank more than usual. And they spent the time singing and saying Dibri Torah. And after, they were in total complete control. And it was, it was a nice experience, actually. It was a nice experience. 
But what's going on here? What, what is it that there's no other regal? We don't find with the other regalim there's an obligation to drink. We find there's an obligation to have some wine to lead to some simcha, but not an obligation to drink to the point of, again, let's not even say intoxication, to a point where you are, um, you are a little bit uh, more free and open and able to experience that sense of uh, happiness or joy more. Right? Let's put it that. Again, other holidays, it's definitely a sim, a, a idea of simcha. To have, uh, part of simcha is having some sort of wine. But I think Purim, it's the, the, the point is it's drinking more than usual. It's trying to get yourself into a state of mind, a happy state of mind, almost as if we're trying to artificially stimulate a sort of simcha here. You don't find that by the other holidays. We don't find that at all. Um, in fact, we actually find the opposite. We find the opposite. The, um, the Rambam writes, this is in the laws of Yom Tov, which we know, again, Yom Tov, we also have, we have meals. We have meals. We don't call it Mishnah. We don't call it a party. We call it a Suda. It's another difference. What are the mitzvahs of the day of Purim? Megillah, Matanas of Yonim, Meshach um, Manos, and Mishnah, we say. It's a party. Whereas on Shabbos, we say Suda, the meal of Shabbos. When a person says the Rambam, on a holiday, eats and drinks and is happy on the holiday, do not drink too much wine. So the Rambam actually puts a, a note of caution. And do not engage in too much levity. And think, oh, and by doing this, by drinking too much, by engaging in this levity, um, I'm doing the mitzvah. Rambam is saying, don't hide behind the skirts of Shulchan Aruch to defend what you just want to do because you want to have a good time. You want to have a good time? Okay, we can discuss that some other time. But you don't, don't use Shulchan Aruch, don't use the, the, the Torah as your excuse. That's not what the requirement of uh, the, the Simcha on a regal is, he says, a Simcha on a holiday. He says, getting drunk and partying, that is not simcha. That's not, when we say simcha, an inner joy. He says that is holulus. It's, it's, it's emptiness. It's vanity. It's uh, a certain sense of levity, which is not what the Torah requires of us. And I think another interesting distinction some pointed out is, I think Robert Ramon pointed this out, that there's two, uh, there's two types of happiness people go after. There's a real, true inner happiness, and then there are things that make someone happy. The reason they make them happy is not because they bring a sense of happiness, but they, they're an escape. Watching a movie doesn't make someone happy as much as it's an escape from the reality of life that someone may want to get away from for an hour or two, or now movies four or six, or I don't know how long the movies started getting. Okay, that's what happens in today's world. The Rambam says that that's not the simcha that we're... we're, we're, we're Questing after on a regal. The simcha we're looking for, he says, is one of Tachas of, that we're supposed to serve God with a sense of simcha and joy and have this sense of uh, inner simcha when we do it, but not a sense of schok vikalis rosh, of lightheadedness, of, of levity, of just trying to enjoy oneself for the sake of enjoying oneself. So I think what's, what's fascinating is when the Rambam sets up the paradigm of what is simcha in the sense of simcha of, of the physical. The sense of joy of, of Yom Tov. There's no intoxication. It's the opposite. He says, don't get intoxicated. In fact, there's actually a practice that some have after Sukkot and Pesach called Bahab. Bahab is the fast, people fast the Monday, Thursday, and Monday following these two holidays because they're afraid maybe they actually engage in too much levity and they want to atone for it. So the Rambam says that some, somehow this is, no, the Rambam, the Rambam says don't, don't engage in Simcha. What Rabbi Salvechi points out is, and then we come to Purim, and this is, Simcha has been modified and converted into hilarity and gaiety. He says, you can't call this Simcha. 
He says, true simcha, true joy, is an internal experience that has nothing to do with the external behavior of man. Joy does not express itself in singing or dancing. One can be very quiet, very sedate, very contemplative, or meditative, and still have a great deal of happiness and joy. Joy is indeed a quiet, meditative experience. On the contrary, he says, sometimes when joy explodes to the surface, we question the sincerity and the depth of that joy. That sometimes it's, I'll get to questions after. Sometimes it's a, uh, um, sometimes it's, it's fake. Sometimes it's really masking a sense of insecurity and doubt. And that's how the, the, these public manifestations of joy really are. So what he says is, I don't understand. I think it makes a lot of sense. Real joy is this inner sense of, it's almost, it, it, a person can look totally almost, almost uh, emotionless on the outside, but be full of a real sense of joy. What Purim is pushing towards is this very external manifestation which is masking, perhaps, that might be a key word, what's really going on inside. That, he says, is not joy. He also, Salvation quotes another Gemara. The Gemara points out that holidays are split. Chatzi lechem, the chatzi lachem. Half for God, spent in the base medrash, spent learning, and chatzi lechem, spent at home, enjoying a nice meal. Which is an interesting, uh, interesting way to look at it. That we're supposed to spend, a, we're not supposed to spend all of holiday in show, but we're also not supposed to spend it quickly in show so we can get home and have a good time. Chatzil Lashem, Chatzil Lachem. In fact, the Yam Shel Shlomo, Shlomo Lori asks, so why do we have such long davening on Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah? And he says, okay, these two times, maybe there's reason for it, because again, we're, our, the, uh, we're sitting there, we're being judged, but on a normal holiday, Chatzil Lachem, the Chatzil Lashem. And, and so the Rei Salvation says, I don't get it. If a person is drunk, you cannot engage in this chatzil lachem, this experience of dedicated dedication towards God. If you are intoxicated, he said you can't have this, you know, this sense of uh, of Tama Torah, which he said ultimately every all of emotions in Judaism stem start stem from an end in in, in a cerebral uh, place, an intellectual place of Tama Torah of engaging God that way. That's not going to happen if you're drunk. That doesn't happen at Purim Sudas. People start getting up there and giving different Torah. Although allegedly, I heard of uh, Ravaren Lichtenstein, who we've mentioned many times. So he was a, a very cerebral feller. And one year on Purim, so his co-Rosh Hashiva was Rav Amital, who came from Hasidish stock. And uh, the way it worked, uh, he, he would run the dancing and singing on Purim. One year, he was um, leading the dancing and singing, or Amital was, and he had to walk out for a moment, I don't know, to go do something. So he turns to Rav Lichtenstein and goes, can you take over the dancing and singing in the yeshiva? So Rav Lichtenstein sits down, and starts going through some Torah, giving a Devar Torah. You know, Purim is really a bad... And they heard from Cross, la, 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 Ramadan comes running in, sing with them, sing with them. Purim is, doesn't really lend itself to Talmud Torah. And yet Talmud Torah is this sense of, um, this Talmud Torah is where you have this intellectual, uh, the intellectual, Talmud Torah is where you get this inner sense of, of connection. So again, what he wants, Rabbi Salvechik says, I don't get it, he says. Uh, I'll read the quote again. He says, and the, you know, the aforementioned story that of Rob, Rob and Rav Zera, where Rabba drinks so much that he injures Rav Zera, of drinking to self-abandonment, of losing control, of actually uh, implicit inflict, inflicting of physical harm is so puzzling. Why did this idea of self-abandonment on Purim and not on the other festivals and other holidays? What, what's going on? Why do we, we don't say anywhere else. Why do we say it here? How, do, how does it work? He says, in fact, this is a fascinating idea. And actually, I brought it here. There are many commentators, many Rishonim who think, even on Yom Kippur itself, the day where you would think would least lend itself to Simcha, when we engage in self, um, in fasting, in abstention from any physical pursuit, in, 
in the sense of self-reflecting and meditation, in almost um, in, in punishing ourselves in a way, even then, many Rishonim think there's still a din of Simcha, which really leads us to say that Simcha is not physical. It's not about just having a good steak. There's something, there's a deep inner joy to it. I bring here, this is in a very old sitter from Amram Gon. This, is, this one itself is about this is 700, 800 years old. Normally you can auction it off when we're done. It's like 700, 800 years old. And look, we don't, this is not, our, our liturgy doesn't say this, but the liturgy of Rabbi Amram Gon, who's one of the first sitters, this is, his, this is what he writes on, on Yom Kippur. So that we know, we say So again, this is something we do say on all holidays. We say, we, we, we're, in the sense of joy, we bring it on. It's a holiday of simcha, of joy. Shalom, peace, kashir, is the way you want, you desired it. That is lifted seemingly out of Purim, Pesach, Shavuot. Says Rav Aram Gon, you even say that on Yom Kippur itself. To reflect that Yom, even on Yom Kippur itself, there's a sense of simcha, of joy. It's an inner sense of joy. One which doesn't, which that simcha is not contradicted by the sense of uh, abstention from all physical pleasure that takes place in Yom Kippur. And I think it, there's, there's, something, there's something to that. And yet, the, obviously, the question is, what's going on on Purim? What are we doing on Purim? So, Ray Salvejic, um, I'll do one more, one more source, and that is as follows. Ray Salvejic points out as well that Aristotle writes, um, and we know the Greeks are famous for theater, for, for acting. Aristotle, in, in, in fact, writes that catharsis, uh, the purging and cleansing of the spiritual pers- personality, what we would call tahara, purity, is, come, is attained through acting, through evoking the emotions of piety, the ilios and the fear of phobos, stimulating by the tragic performance, by the p- tragic performance. That in acting itself is a spiritual pursuit in the world of Greek mythology, in Greece, Greek philosophy. If you look in the Jewish sources, they actually say the opposite. Going to the circus, they say, is, uh, is, is not only wrong, but it's, it's perhaps almost like engaging in idol worship. Now, the circuses back then were not like the circuses now. They had, uh, I mean, they bullfighting, which we do have. They had you know, the Colosseum. You can think what it looked like. There were the gladiators. But the point is that the idea of acting and the idea that where Greeks said this was a high ideal, we totally reject. And yet Purim has the Purim spiel. Purim is all about acting, putting on masks. It's, it's, there's something about the Purim experience which seems so diametrically opposite to what we are trying to advocate and push the rest of the year. Now, we are people, I believe, that when we have certain mitzvahs, and we have holidays, it's not just to fulfill a mitzvah, but there's a lesson there we're supposed to take out of Pesach, which is supposed to then last the whole year. There's a lesson of Purim and Hanukkah, and yet Purim seems to almost stand up there and say, whatever lesson we have thought of, of what Simcha is and the way in which we're supposed to live that life of Simcha, well, Purim says, no, we're going to drink and lose, contr- lose some of the control. We're going to act. We're go- What's going on with all this? So says Rabbi Salvechik as follows. All of this highlights that Purim is not a day of simcha, of joy. Rather, it's a day of fun, of making light, of gaiety, of good-hearted fun and unrestricted hilarity. Why? He says as follows. Well, he goes, at the heart, simcha, he says. When we talk about simcha, again, it's hard to translate what simcha means. It's more than happy. He says, simcha is an experience. It's an experience. Joy of Purim is a mood. A mood, he says, is something that can, it, it, it comes, it goes, many things can affect it. Someone smiles at you, it affects your mood. You read something on the news, it affects your mood. 
The inner experience, experience I stress, of joy is not affected necessarily by what's going on around you. It's a certain sense of living a purposeful life, of knowing what you're doing matters, of knowing who you are matters. In fact, says Rabbi Soloveitchik, anytime we use the word simcha in the Torah, it's always followed by lifnei Hashem, before the Lord. And I'll bring you two psukim. One is, we say that we should take on the first day, Priyat's Hadar and Esrog, Kapas Tamarav, Anav Eitz Ezev Arei Nacho. So these are all, again, take the Lulav and Esrog. Visimachtem, you should be happy, you should be joyful, right? As we know, so this is a time of joy. Lifnei Hashem Lokechem, before God. Says by Midbar talking also um, about Sukkot as well. You should, again, there, it's have a sense of joy, a chag, lifnei Hashem. There's a constant, he says, in a, a constant sense of simcha happens before Hashem. And what's that telling us? He says that when we come close to the wellspring of being, when man comes close to his roots, when he somehow feels the presence of his maker and experiences that companionship, that is a joy. There's a sense of self-fulfillment. That is not an emotion or a mood, that is an experience. We move from the superficiality of joy and we move to some an experience that's integrated into our personalities, that expresses who we are and part of our personality. And I think this is something very, it's fascinating, I think it's so true, that ultimately, yes, we can engage in all sorts of quote-unquote fun things, but you can be a very sad person, even as you're enjoying yourself and having fun. Real simcha happiness comes from that inner conviction of you know you matter. You know what you do matters. You know that you're lifnei Hashem, which gives you the sense of standing before the Lord. I matter. What I do matters. I have a purpose in life. The people who I love have a purpose in life. That is joy. But then obviously it begs the question, because Purim is not about joy of the, the experience. It's about the mood. A mood which, as we point out, you can be a very sad person. If you drink, you're quote-unquote happy. You put on a mask, you look happy. You have a mishta party, you look happy. But ultimately, that's not real joy. That's not the inner tranquility that the Roy Salvechik is talking about. That's just a passing mood. So what are we doing in Purim? What, what is different and unique about Purim that we, in fact, are advocating? One should put themselves in the mood of simcha, even though they're not achieving necessarily real simcha. And I think that's a very strong question. Any thoughts? That, that that is true. Well, that's that that that, that, that talks. I think the first part, the, the simple experience, the, the that that's more of the, the simple experience. What if your life is a day falling apart? And then what, who becomes your best friend? Your whiskey. <laughs> and then that's the point that you, your life's falling apart. Your whiskey becomes your best friend. That's not an experience of inner simcha. That's an experience. That's a mood. It's a mood change. It's an escape. So maybe we'll get to that in one minute. I think that one other place to look is that, I mean, who's here, you're standing, you were here last night. The Avelos, mourning. So mourning, has, when it uh, meets up with certain, certain days throughout the year, there are three things that can happen. Generally, if someone's in mourning, they're in Shiva, they're mourning. Comes Yomtif, we say something about the Yomtif, we'll get to it in a minute cancels morning and it doesn't even pick up afterwards Shabbos doesn't cancel it but we don't observe it and then they could just say morning overrides Lagwa Omer or Rosh Chodesh says Rabbi Salavechik the inner experience of Simcha of that true inner joy 
doesn't doesn't work, doesn't cohere, can't exist with the inner grief of mourning. Because what is mourning? Mourning is God turning away, is Hester Pundit. Simcha is being in the presence of God. You can't be in the presence of God experiencing the regal, experiencing Yom Tov, and, ha- and experience the inner grief of mourning. And therefore we say, one has to go. So the simcha of Yom Tov, of being before God, takes over and knocks away mourning. What happens in Purim? So although there, we say Purim, it comes kind of like Shabbos, but Purim does not knock off. Purim does not push off Yom Tov, uh, mourning. Why? Because again, because Purim is not about the inner experience of joy, which, does, which, can't, which contradicts and does, can't live with mourning. It's, just, it's an external manifestation of a mood. What's going on here? It says Ray Salvechik. This was fascinating. Says, you know why Perm is so different? He says, we have to look at one more Gemara. Ready for this Gemara? The Gemara asks the following question. There are 18 days throughout the year where we say halal. There are biblically. Pesach one day, Shavuos one day, Sukkot for seven days, Hanukkah for eight days. You do the math, you get to 18. Says the Gemara in, Oshchodesh is only a minhag, which is why we also we say half halal. We leave out parts. Says the Gemara in Megillah. Why do we not say halal on, excuse me, on Purim? Think it's a day we should Purim. In fact, says the Gemara as follows. Tanu Rabbanan, um, there were 48 Nevi'im, 48 prophets that the Jewish people had. Now, there were way, way more than that, but 48 prophets who wrote things down that were, that were recorded for posterity. Okay? And there were seven Nevi'os, seven women, uh, female uh, um, prophets, who, again, who we, again, there were many more than that, but who made a, a difference for posterity in the sense that it, they in, it impacted the global Jewish world um, and of all these Nevi'im and Nevi'os, all these prophets and prophetesses, none of them added on to the Torah. In fact, the Gemara, the, the Pasuk tells us, in the Torah tells us, in Devarim, if someone gets up there, a prophet gets up there and says, I'm adding or subtracting from the Torah, that's a sure sign they're a false prophet. Except Chutz in Mikra Megillah. The only addition we have that came from a prophet to the Torah was reading the Megillah. Now, I just said a minute ago, one minute, a prophet can't add or subtract from Torah. So it says the Gemara as follows. Ma'adarish, what gave them license to add on to the Torah? How could they do this? Omer Avchiyah bar Oven, Omer Bishuah ben Karcha, says Bishuah ben Oven, in the name of Bishuah ben Karcha. Uma me'avdus l'cheiris amrin and shira. If, when we were held captive in Egypt, and we experienced our emancipation and ultimate salvation, what was our... Reaction: As Yashir and Moshe of Israel, we broke out in song, singing. We praise God, and that was only we were we were still alive in Egypt. Okay, we were in captivity, terrible place to be. But at the end of the day, the salvation, you know, on the level of salvation from being saved from death versus being saved from captivity, it's it's smaller. It's a smaller. It's it's less. Mimisa l'chaim, and certainly salvation from death to now living, i.e., the Purim story. Certainly, then, we should sing songs of praise. As in to say, in the Chassam Sofer of Moshe Sofer writes, this is actually a Doraisa Halacha. The Torah mandates this. Anytime someone experiences a true salvation, they have an obligation to thank and praise God. And one way of doing that is through Halal. If that's true, then the Gemara wants to know. Ihachi, if that's true, so what's going on with Purim? You just told me the source 
for the Megillah. Is that if we were saved from captivity, we have an obligation to praise God, to say hallel, then we have an obligation to praise God as well when we are saved from death. So why are we not saying hallel on Purim? What's going on here? The Gemara now gives three answers. First, he says, Hallel is only said on a miracle that happens in Chutz Laaretz. Um, so then the Gemara says, one minute, but we said Hallel at the, at, at, after we left the triumphs. So the Gemara says, okay, fine. That was before we ever got to Israel. Once we get to Israel, Hallel is reserved for miracles that take place in Israel itself. Okay, not the obligation to, to praise God. That still exists. But the actual saying, the, the chapters of Tehillim, as formulated by Hallel, that is for in Israel. Then the Gemara gives a second answer. Um, uh, sorry. Rav Nachman The actual reading of the Megillah that is in place of Hallel, as if to say that it takes on a Hallel significance, which is, and we'll see in a minute, Rav Salvech is going to disagree with what I'm about to say, which is okay. There are those who argue, there are those who say, if this is true, if Megillah is in place of Hallel, as in Megillah is accomplishing the same goals of Hallel. Hallel is about praising God. Megillah somehow is about praising God as well. Let's say you find yourself on a deserted island and you have no Megillah. What should you do? Say Hallel. And I believe Rabbi Ramon in a safer, for, he wrote for the soldiers in the army. Say, let's say you're in an out, you're in an outpost out in, I don't know, wherever you are, somewhere out in the Golan, and for some reason you can't get a hold of the Megillah. Say Hallel. Kriyasa zu Hallel. So that's answer number two. Why don't we say halal and Purim? We do. We just say different words, as in it's through the Megillah that itself is an experience of praising God. Interesting to think about. And then comes along the last answer and says as follows. Rav Amar Bishlom HaSam. Halu Avdi Hashem, Lo Avdi Parah, El Ha'cha, Halu Avdi Hashem, Lo Avdi Achashverosh, Akati Avdi Achashverosh, Anan. You know why we don't say halal? Because at the end of the day, the, as wonderful as the salvation the, the, saving, the saving from death that we experience in times of Megillah, that may have been a salvation, but it wasn't a redemption. It may have been an atzala, but it wasn't a geula, because we were still under the rulership of Achashverosh. It wasn't a full and total geula. And he says this following, if you think about it, even for a moment, let's explore this answer first. Just take Achashverosh for a moment. Right? The Achashverosh. The Gemara is unclear, is unsure, was he a brilliant man or was he a tippish, a foolish man? And I think really, as we'll see in a moment, he was probably both. Because sometimes the most brilliant people are the ones who end up being the most foolish. There's a certain, um, either because they feel like they know better than everyone else, or there's, there's a certain sense of uh, impulsiveness they have. Achashverosh, think about it for a moment, he was a very mercurial person. He lived in a certain capricion. He was changing his mood. Comes along Mumuchan, who we know is Haman, right, in the beginning of the Megillah, and says, go kill your beautiful wife. Fast forward a couple chapters, comes along his beautiful, a new beautiful wife, kill Haman. Oh, sure, sure, sure. He, he's, he's con- his mood is constantly changing. He's, he's, he's capricious the way, in the way he approaches life. He was unstable, which means that even though the Jews experienced the salvation, Haman is now hanging on the gallows, they, lived with, they didn't have the confidence as they went on to know how long is this going to last. Things look good now. Things are good for us now. We have everything we need. But there's this looming shadow of how long is this going to last? When someone can change so quickly, we always know they can change so quickly back. And therefore, they, therefore because they, they lack this confidence, maybe Mordechai is in charge now. Tomorrow, New Haman will take his place. If that was true, he says, let's contrast this to Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot. There he says, the events of Pesach, we were freed from bondage. We, became, we then went and we embraced God. We became a covenantal community 
Nothing the enemy could do to us could have changed that. We were now a fundamentally different nation, one that was a nation of God, the Amanivchar. He says, if you look at you know, Shavuot as well, once we got the Torah, we were fundamentally different to- people. And we became, we, the Pasuk says, Amlechas Kohanim. We are a holy nation. Nothing that the enemy can do to us can change that. Sukkot as well, as we go through this long sojourn in the wilderness, again, we gradually changed from a people who are primitive slaves into an, a holy, enlightened people. Nothing the enemy can do can change that. Perm was not a permanent nature. Perm, we were saved. But I didn't guarantee we'd be saved tomorrow. And that's why he says there's no halal. There's no halal because we were still under, under Achishverosh. And then he takes it one step further. He says maybe even you can read the Kriyasa Zu Halal. The actual reading of Megillah is halal, different than the way the poets can want to learn. The poets can want to learn that, that Megillah itself has a nature of halal. The same way halal is about praising God, so too is the Megillah, as we pointed out, to, to the extreme that if you don't have Megillah, maybe you say halal. But even as we say halal, this also can be why, if you recall, we say halal twice, once at night, and one, sorry, we say Megillah twice, once at night, once during the day. You would assume it just means God, I don't know, for some reason say it twice, which we'll see in a minute what the Pusik is. But we also, interestingly, say Shechianu, right? The blessing we say on a new mitzvah, which we only say once every 30 days, both at night and during the day. Why do we say it twice? So Rabbi Salvechik points out, because the halal at night is different than the halal during the day. The halal during the day is about reading the Megillah to relate the story, to retell the story. The halal at night is actually the shira. It's when we sing to God. It's that deep place. That's the Megillah at night is when we say the, the halal. But Rabbi Salvechik then takes it, has, has a different approach. He goes, you know why the Megillah is in place of halal? Because there's something in the story of the Megillah, and again, this is going to play off what we just said a minute ago, but still being under the, the auspices and the, and the rulership of Achashverosh, there's something in the Megillah that's very different than the Halal. We're trying to relate something in the Megillah, the experience we went through, which relates to the experience we are in today, that Halal can't convey. Halal is about praising God for our being saved, for the Geula, for the redemption. He says, but there's an additional message in the Megillah. Beyond just the triumph and the salvation, the Megillah is also a story of tragedy, of our peculiar Jewish destiny. It's a book of insecurity. What, do I, what does he mean by that? So if you look at the end of the Megillah, right, the end, after the salvation, after Haman is, and everything's going on, Esther's now in the good graces of Achishverosh, anything she wants, up to half his kingdom, he will give to her. Listen to how she approaches Achishverosh. And we've read it many times, but let's, we're going to highlight it now. Batos of Esther, Dabra Lefnei Esther comes again before the king. And she falls at his feet. And she's weeping. And she's beseeching him. She's weeping and pleading and groveling to Achishverosh, please end this evil decree that Haman has decreed on the Jewish people. And she goes on, she says, How can I see the disaster that we've all my people? How could it be bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Okay, so it's a, it's a woman, it's, a, it's a, the, the, the matriarch of, of the Jewish people pleading on behalf of the Jewish people. It's a beautiful image. Except, we never find Moses talking to Paro in this way. Moshe comes in with a sense that we say in Yiddish, Stoltz, I own this place. I'm a mission from God. I know what I'm going to do. Paro! Let the Jewish people go. Power can insult him. Power can, can yell and scream at him. 
There was no groveling. There was no, please, power, please, 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 please let the people go. Moshe came in there. Moshe, even, you know, according to some, went down to the river. I'll get to that after the end. Came, went down to the river. When power was going to the bathroom, the, the, the power used to tell everyone he was a god. Gods don't go to bathrooms. So he used to go take a swim every morning, and that's when he would go to the bathroom in the river. And Moshe comes up to him and goes, Hi, Paro, I know what you're doing. <laughs> Moshe didn't care. We don't, we never find Moshe uh, groveling. Moshe's always composed. He knows what he wants. As we say he's a stultz. He's like, I know what I want. But the story of Purim, the story of Purim, Esther, even at the, 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 the climax, is crying, is begging. There's something about it story we see there. In fact, there are those who even argue we should say Tachnan. Tachnan on Purim. Why? It says Tor. Um, again, tach, we don't say Tachnan on a regular holiday, but it says, Min yeshivas came to him yom because on the one hand, it's a day of a miracle. Nigol, uh, when we were freed. Uh, and therefore, because we were freed, you would expect the saying, we should sing, we should dance, uh, have a Pesach Seder, sit in the sukkah. So, so he says, Therefore, on Purim is the opportune, the opportune time, not just to praise God, but to say tachlun and ask and beseech God that we should be freed again in the ultimate redemption. In the ultimate redemption. Purim, the story of the Megillah, is not just one of salvation, but it's also about Jewish tragedy. It's also about an insecurity. In fact, we mentioned a minute ago, what's the, what's the verse that tells us we read Megillah twice? How do you know you read it twice? The, the, the Talmud records as follows. Talmud records, because the Pasuk says, Elokai ekra yomam v'lo ta'ana v'layla v'lo dum yunli. The Pasuk in Psalms, Oh my God, I call by you by, uh, by day, but you do not answer, and at night, and there's no, and there's no uh, answer to me. It's a very strange Pasuk to quote. Out of all the Pasukim, all the verses you can quote, it quotes a verse, but us beseeching God, mimamakim, calling God from the depths. God, you, I called you during the day, you don't answer me. I called you at night, you don't answer me. That's the source for the Megillah? And what do you think that tells us if that's the source for the reading of the Megillah twice? It's not just about the salvation. Perm is also, it's also about, it's also about the tragedy in the story. The fact that even when we were freed, Esther has to beseech Paro and grovel to Paro and cry to, to excuse me, to Atachashverosh, to, to, to beg for her people. And just one more source before we tie it all together. There's another debate in the Gemara. Yes, the book of the Megillah is nine chapters. But the, the Gemara wants to know where do we start reading from in order to fulfill our obligation. Do you have to read the whole story? Do you have to read part of the story? The Gemara says, some say, or Mary says, Kula, which is what we do, all the story. Rehuda says, Me'ish Yehudi. Once Mordechai is introduced onto the scene, that's where the story really picks up, becomes uh, more relevant to the Jewish people, and that's where we, should, we have to read it from. And from after the following things when Haman comes onto the scene. You would think, however, if it's about the miracle, maybe you should just read from the turning point in the Megillah, which was you know, on that night, the king couldn't sleep. That was when, that was when, um, that, that's the turning point of the Megillah, right? We, always, we feel that, the king couldn't sleep, Haman comes, and Achashverosh says to Haman, you know, go and basically give Mordechai all this covet, and that's when we kind of know things have turned the tide, Haman's out, Mordechai's in, and the story's over. Well, you would think if it's about the salvation, so why don't we focus on that part? Focus on the salvation. Why are we reading the whole story? And says Rev. Salvechik as follows. Second here. You know why? As we're bringing it all together. It's for the same reason why there's no simcha on Purim. There's no inner experience of Purim, rather it's about a mood. 
he says, because the story of Megillah is a story of triumph, but it's also of human despair, of instability, of insecurity. He says, even as, even though we were saved, even though we were saved, and we, it's a miracle we do have to celebrate, there was never a sense of this could be permanent. We were still under the rulership of power. We were still in Gullus. We weren't living in Israel. That's how you see all the answers that tied together on one answer. We weren't living in Israel under in an autonomous state, in a, in, you know, in a Jewish commonwealth. We were living under another ruler. We didn't know what tomorrow would bring. And this is the story of Gullus, of living in exile, where things can look good one day and look terrible the next day. And there's always a sense of insecurity. And therefore, he says as follows, we cannot celebrate Purim and Pesach. So we cannot celebrate Purim the way we celebrate Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkos. Because ultimately, it lacks that inner experience of tranquility, of joy, of being before God, when we may still be in exile. We may not be where we want to be when it comes to our relationship with God. He says, therefore, what the sages say, this is not a type of holiday we can celebrate with hollow, with an awareness of being in front of God. The victory is not final. The triumph is not decisive. And we can, therefore cannot know. We cannot know what tomorrow will bring. I think it's a fascinating idea, which is why Purim is so, in a way, so relevant. Because what Purim is, is, yeah, we have to experience, we, we, we manufacture joy. We manufacture a sense of joy because we have to celebrate to God. And celebrate, but ultimately we don't. We're not standing in front of God. We're still in exile. We're not living in Israel. And living in Israel, we're still living with a sense of gullus of, of of. You open the news every five minutes, right? Uh, Ellen's grandson was when he was in yeshiva with one of the boys killed this week. My brother was the roommate of one of the other boys who was killed this week. One of the men killed this week. We're living in a sense of gullus. There's a sense of insecurity. There's a sense of we don't know what tomorrow will bring. And, and, a, and it's very hard to have the inner sense of calmness of tranquility. When we're not living, as we said, in front of God. So while we celebrate Purim, we can't say halal. We can't say this is a full-fledged geula, redemption. What it is, is it's a salvation which we're required to thank God for. And therefore, in a way, we have to manufacture some sort of joy. Because that's what the day demands of us. But it's in a way, even with that manufactured mood, there's a sense of sadness knowing that who knows what tomorrow will bring. And therefore, Purim, while yes, it's a day of happiness... Ultimately, it's not a day of standing in front of God, the true inner experience of joy. I wish you all a wonderful Purim, and I believe Inbar probably has like six questions. Yeah. Two so far, two big ones. So first of all, you 